Hello everyone, welcome to Project Kaleidoscope. I'm Megan McNaughton. And I'm Aaron Adams. And today we are going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino wrote and directed nine films. He's received multiple industry awards and two Academy Awards. He's mainly known for his aesthetic approach to violence, his storylines, his non-linear plots, and he also remains a controversial figure in the film industry. So let's talk about it. Where to begin? Where to begin? I feel like we should start with just talking about Quentin Tarantino as a director and as a writer in general. So something really interesting about Quentin Tarantino is that he actually writes his films first as a novel. He translates it to be on the screen. So we kind of see how he uses this method through different films of his, such as Inglorious Bastards, which has a chapter set up to it. Not to mention Hateful Eight and Bill Bill also have the same chapter format. The way that he writes it is so that he can make sure that he can have this ultimate like plot set up and this ultimate like character development so that he can overall create a story that is, well, it's a book, it's a novel. That's why his movies are so long. Yeah, it almost kind of gives the audience a way to prepare for what's coming next. Chapter one, and then it gives you a title. Chapter two gives you a title, and you kind of understand where it should be going, but when you're in it, you don't realize that you're kind of going along chapter to chapter. It just kind of flows so beautifully. It also gives them slight intermission to breathe between scenes, which is also a very interesting way of pacing. Absolutely, and that's kind of where I was going to go with that, is that it kind of gives everyone a moment to kind of breathe and take in what they just saw, as well as make it feel like it's not going as long as it actually is, which is honestly just a fantastic method for him to use. As well, I want to kind of talk about the fact that he reuses actors in so many of his films. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see Sam Jackson in so many different films of his. We see Leonardo DiCaprio. Who was in at least two. Brad Pitt, who was in at least two. Um, I see. Uma Furman. Mm-hmm. And I'm missing the names of some of the people for who were in Reservoir Dogs, but like Mr. Blonde was reused. Steve Buscemi. Samuel Jackson's a good example. Not only has he been in like actual roles for Django, he was a voiceover for Inglorious uh, Bastards. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a role in Jackie Brown. He also had a huge role in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see how Tarantino will take one actor and kind of expand their range. Make him a good guy this time, make him a bad guy this time, make him a narrator the next time. It's such an interesting dynamic because you're used to seeing one actor in one role doing the same thing, but slightly different. Take Tom Cruise, for example. Action hero. Always the main character. Does his own stunts, but, you know, he never really strays too much from the I'm the good guy, let me shoot some people kind of aesthetic. And something that this leads into is normal violence in movies to Quentin Tarantino's violence in movies. Why the need for so much unnecessary violence? Because it's so much fun, Jan. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, personally, I feel like with Tarantino, this is where a lot of controversy comes in because Mm -hmm. people absolutely hate the violence because it's honestly so brutal. It's so brutal. But I feel like he uses his violence with a purpose. Definitely. There is that gritty nature to it, and it's more grounded. You don't see someone just walk into a room and basically do this air jump and shoot five people. No, one person gets shot, another person takes a bullet. Usually in scenes, the gunfire is exchanged, and maybe in the exception of Django, for me, everyone gets shot. Take example for Reservoir Dogs. The scene when the father, who is the criminal mastermind, the son, and Mr... I think it's Mr. White, they all shoot each other. 
Another example of this would be the whole scene in the basement at the bar in Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. When the shootout occurs, there's not one character who doesn't get shot. Everyone except Maximilian is pretty much shot. Yeah, he leaves actually completely unscathed until, well, the end of that situation, of course. When? He's ultimately killed. And that scene shows that, like, when the guns go off, it's not just one person eliminating a room. It's it's frantic. It's chaotic. It's a, a high-intensity moment that most movies kind of downplay. There's also the all the scenes, pretty much, you would say, in Kill Bill, where it's very intimate. It's stylized to be kung fu, but none of these scenes have no purpose. They're all leading up to the big climax, a whole revenge story, right? Mm-hmm. So... I mean, yeah, everything has a purpose. It's not unnecessary violence. It adds to the plot. And if you're not going to just talk about the guns, the scenes of violence that are ultimately the ones that make people look away. Reservoir Dogs would have the cutting of the ear. Pulp Pulp Fiction Fiction would have the basement scene, which, trigger warning, was sexual assault. Then we have the very, very controversial Django scene with the slave being torn apart by the dogs because at a whim, he's like, you're not going to fight for me. You're my property. You're no more use to me. So I kill you. Which leads to being a very big scene for the German bounty hunter who said, I can't shake hands with this man because he constantly replays that in his head of how horrific it is. Exactly. And these scenes are meant to violate us, but in a way to make you think. They're not meant to be something that, oh, it's just violence for being violent. It's it's purposeful. And that's some of the things that in the controversy of all this is lost. Absolutely, because I feel like, again, his violence for sure definitely has purpose. And it also makes you think within context, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to take into example, which I honestly feel to be the least violent scene in Inglorious Bastards, the first scene where the Jew hunter comes in and he shoots up the floorboards. Which I will get into this later, why this is so interesting to me. But there is no blood shown other than when Shoshana, the one surviving member of the family, is running from the house. And she is obviously drenched in blood. Mm -hmm. But the whole reason why that was shot in the first place and why this violence is even shown was to display the horrors of the Holocaust and the horrors of what the Nazis did to the Jews. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with Django. Why was all this violence depicted? To show the history and what actually went down, not to make it pretty, not to sugarcoat it, but to make you look at it and realize like, oh my God, this happened and this is how it happened. And this is wrong and disgusting and it's violating. If you think it was supposed to be like shocking just for the sake of shocking, then you've misinterpreted You're, the whole thing. You missed the whole point. Yeah. Why sugarcoat something that really needs to be talked about? The horrific nature of what slaves were. They were seen as property and treated treated as such and it's like people want to shy away from that part of history but quentin tarantino takes a really good approach of saying look this is what it was sure i have this fantasy world for you to be self-removed from it but the violence in it hits a little too close to home for some people and they're not willing to accept that kind of reality again it is it is a little traumatizing absolutely Mm -hmm. especially for groups who you know are a part of this history it's extremely traumatizing Mm -hmm. But again, for a different audience, 
who maybe wouldn't ever look at this in the first place, it's so important and it's so important to be talked about. And also just kind of going into that whole aspect too, talking about the way that Tarantino in quotes like rewrites history mm-hmm. is also so interesting. Cause I mean, we see it in *Inglorious Bastards. We see it a little bit in Django and we see it a lot in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It is so interesting the way that he can take a story and ultimately, like, you know, Tarantino's big on um, violence, but he's also really big on revenge stories. He loves revenge stories. Seeing how that kind of translates to the screen, I mean, you can talk about Inglorious Bastards. Obviously, the ending is not how it went down, but it is so symbolic, the way that Hitler and the rest of the German and Nazi regime kind of fell. It is so symbolic. The way that in Once Upon a Time, he wants to imagine a different world in which Sharon Tate lives also, just, you know, throw in a completely iconic ending scene altogether. We all can say when the blowtorch came out, we were all like, oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I think for me, the favorite part about that end scene is when Brad Pitt's stuntman character, he throws the can of dog food at the one guy's face, sicks the dog on the other guy, while on acid. Well, if you want to go there, my favorite was when he's holding the uh, Austin Butler's character was oh holding God. the gun up to him and he puts his hand up in a gun shape and is like, haha, this is funny. Hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. But it kind of puts a lighter hearted feel to the violence that's about to ensue. Oh, I know. And then I remember watching a documentary kind of like YouTube series on different film directors. And one of the things that stood out to me when it came to Quentin Tarantino is there are scenes where you're supposed to laugh, laugh, don't laugh. Okay, laugh. Because there are some times where it's like, yes, that's funny. That's funny. Okay, we're going to show you the violence. Okay, now you can go back to being fantasy. Like, it's it's this weird dynamic that he has with the whole thing. Back to the revenge stories thing. It is such a powerful thing to give a woman a revenge story. It is a powerful thing to give a black man a, a revenge. And when we go from there, it kind of leads into that story dynamic of how he likes to set up things. It's not just no purpose set up here. It's it's giving someone a voice. Like he like someone would say like, "Oh my god, violence against women in Kill Bill." But the lead actress is kicking ass. She is not Uma frail. Uma is, first of all, a badass. Love her. But there's a lot of controversy also surrounding mm-hmm. Uma Furman and Quentin Tarantino, which is why she won't do films with him anymore, yeah. which is completely understandable. I'm not saying Quentin Tarantino as a person is a good person, but as a director and a writer, mm-hmm. perhaps we should look a little differently. But of course, it is really hard to separate the two from one yes. another. Yeah, if you want to look at him in films, because one of the main controversies surrounding him, of course, is the fact that people think that he doesn't give women enough voices in his films or his movies are inherently violent towards women. We can also look at the whole issue surrounding Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where everyone was like, oh, wait, this isn't a story about Sharon Tate. I'm so confused. This was supposed to be the Sharon Tate story, but it wasn't wasn't. really (laughs) advertised as such, which is something I think is really funny. But, you know... I reject your hypothesis. He's uh, had some iconic quotes. <laughs> oh, he's hilarious. But um, no, I mean, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about Pulp Fiction, even in terms of the fact that, you know, Uma Furman's character in that, I mean, she plays such a small role. Women in other films of his do kind of play smaller parts. I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say, like, what happened to Uma Furman in Pulp Fiction was inherently violence towards her. I think she inflicted violence towards herself. I mean, she OD'd, of course, and that was 
also traumatizing. It was a traumatizing scene. But, you know, she is saved by someone who injects her with adrenaline. And I wouldn't necessarily say, and people would love to argue that it is inherently violent, but, uh, I mean, it's up to perspective, I suppose. I mean, it could be seen as violating. It's definitely violating. And, I mean, if we want to look at Kill Bill, it's such an interesting (laughs) conversation, too, because we can argue, of course, that it is inherently violent towards women, but we can also look at who's inflicting the violence. I mean, again... He loves to absolutely, It's some of it's really shocking. Kill Bill, there are some scenes in it where it's like, holy shit, like, I cannot believe you just did that. Like, Mrs. Driver's eye. Mm-hmm. Oh my, like, oh my god, that's horrifying. But look at who's inflicting the violence, look at the reason behind the violence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the original, of course, the original reason why Uma Furman's character in Kill Bill goes on this whole revenge mission is because there was violence inflicted upon her from this entire group of people, these assassins, and, of course, Bill. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, that's the inciting action. That's what makes her go on this mission. To say that the entire film is inherently violence towards women, I I don't really know if I agree with that. I think it's an interesting concept, of course. But, I mean, who's inflicting most of the violence in this film? And let's be honest, Uma Thurman in that film is a badass. She is awesome. She I mean, is empowering. You can just look at the one scene of the House of, what is it, 88? Mm-hmm. And that scene alone, all these people, there's that one girl with the chain with the spike at the end, the yeah. saw. But most of those guys are just goons. Absolutely. And she kicked, um, I don't want to say kill off, but she, you know. She, she defends herself. She defends herself. <laughs> horrifyingly. Horrifyingly defends herself. And she beats, like, what? 200, 300, 500 men within five minutes? Well, oh my god. I forgot. I think the scene, I think it's like 100 or something it, like It's that. a lot of men. And then you have female protagonists actually, you know, defeating other female protagonists, having this whole dynamic where it's woman against woman, which is also an interesting concept, of mm-hmm. course. What I'd like to point out is it's not necessarily for the affection or attention of a man. It's so empowering. She's so badass. And like, even at the end of that whole crazy 88 fight, she finds the one teenage kid who's like, can barely hold the sword, and he's like, I have to do this. And she's like, like Go no. home to your mother. She spanks him and tells him to go because he's not meant to be here. And the whole scene is capped off with one hilarious him holding his butt, running out where there is just bodies and blood and horrific mutilation, pretty much. But it kind of goes back to that thing where it's like, laugh, laugh, don't laugh. There's a lot of don't laugh. This is action. This is her being a badass. And then it's, okay, let's cap this off with something light. And then it goes right into the next scene, which is going to be her confrontation with Lucy Liu's character. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like that's so interesting, too. And I feel like we can kind of draw a comparison to Uma Furman's character in Kill Bill to the character of Shoshana in Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards. Because, of course, what is her inciting action, right? Her entire family is massacred. And I have a lot to say about Inglorious Bastards. I think it's an absolutely fantastic film. Also, another really interesting thing about Tarantino is while he reverses roles and everything else, and we want to talk about empowering women and everything, is looking at how historically in Inglorious Bastards, the roles of the Jews and the Nazis are absolutely reversed. And not in a necessarily negative way. I mean, I feel like that's definitely up to your own interpretation if you think that he displays the Jews in his film as horrible as their Nazi foes, 
But the way that he humanizes the Nazis in that film is definitely a very interesting thing and not something that we see in a lot of World War II movies or movies about the Holocaust or Jews or anything. They're always seen as a passive victim. But in Inglorious Bastards, they take on this entire role of being proactive and actually defeating their foes instead of just remaining passive. And it's the ultimate revenge fantasy. You have that one scene in the beginning, the only scene in the entire film where the Jews are actually on the receiving end of violence, right? Which is obviously, historically, we know that there was so much more violence that happened there. But then the rest of the film is just Jews inciting violence onto the Nazis, which is just mind-blowing. It's so interesting. I mean, we can talk about Donnie Donovich, mm-hmm. the Vergio. We can talk about the whole idea of the golem that gets thrown in there, which is just another really interesting thing because... Of course, Tarantino's big thing is violence. But of course, there also needs to be a justification for that violence. And historically, we have justification enough. Obviously, Tarantino does his research. And he threw in the idea of the golem, which is, if you guys don't know, a golem is basically this man-made creature made out of clay. And its sole purpose, it's blessed by a rabbi, and its sole purpose is to protect the Jews in times of need. So obviously, Hitler in this movie is just portrayed as so stupid. But he brings up this whole idea to his sergeant about the bear Jew and him being a golem. And this is really interesting because, of course, there is no actual golem. There is no actual such thing as a golem. It brings this whole idea that this man was sent by, by God to come down and to help save the Jewish people in this time of need. We can also look at Shoshana because... You know, obviously, she is another really instrumental character to taking down the Nazi regime. Of course, Donnie Donovich also literally takes down Hitler and everyone else, and he ultimately blows up the building, which was already on fire. What's so interesting is that when Shoshana ran away, she had to change her name, obviously. She had to destroy her past identity. So she takes on the name Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us in Hebrew. So again, it kind of adds to this whole idea that what they are doing is justified in the eyes of God. So it's, it's a really interesting take because obviously we know who's on the right side of history here. And that is obviously who the protagonists are in this story. It takes on this really interesting theme because there's so much violence. There's so much, I mean, the whole bat scene, the pseudo sports cast, when he's literally bashing in the head of a Nazi, all of it. It is so absolutely sadistic. And we know historically, like, this is not what happened. It was reversed. There has to be this justification there of why they're doing it. There needs to be a justification of violence. And we see this in other stories too. Why is there violence in Django? What's the justification for that? Slavery and all the other oppressions and disgusting things that were faced by these people. Mm-hmm. And what is the justification in Kill Bill? Well, literally, why she is there in the first place? Because she was almost killed. There's all this justification for violence, but what's also really interesting is, again, the research that went into this, in that a golem has the word truth on its forehead. That is how you identify a golem. Written in Hebrew, of course. The whole scalping thing and the whole carving the swastika on the heads of the survivors of, you know, their brutality, of the Jews' brutality, the Nazis. It's honestly such, it's so symbolic, all of it, because it's their, he's writing their truth onto their forehead. They can never escape their identity of being a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's so mind-blowing because it's so empowering. But at the same time, it's kind of just bringing this question into the fact of, like, you're representing one group of people who have been oppressed since literally the beginning of time. You're taking them and you're making them kind of 
a monster, like almost as monstrous as their Nazi foes. And it's just a really interesting concept because, of course, we look at this and we're excited to see it. We love to see it because historically we know that there are so many, so many atrocities. We can even take into perspective the whole idea of the last scene with the fire and the blowing up and everything in this mm-hmm. enclosed theater. What does that represent? A gas chamber. It's a reverse. It's a reversal. It's the ultimate reversal. We all know the history of the Holocaust. I'm going to sugarcoat it for y'all. Millions of Jews were massacred in gas chambers. So the whole takedown of the Nazi regime in kind of a pseudo gas chamber and seeing this big fiery demise and all the shooting and everything, it's so symbolic to the atrocities that were actually faced. It's such a symbolic reversal of rules. It's actually honestly incredible how he came up with this. Mm. It really is. But to kind of go off that more, I mean, it's just such an interesting take, the humanity that he gives to the Nazis. We don't see that. We've never seen that. And not to say that they deserve that humanity. We can look at the Jew hunter, Hans Landa. He's so charismatic. So, yeah, in our common media, we see Nazis as the ultimate bad guys. Take other movies, for example, that are popular, like Captain America. Literally, they're just different Nazis. Then you have every World War II movie. Even Indiana Jones. Nazis. They're just the, they're just a placeholder for bad guys. You can say the same thing for other people that at the time, like Russians, they're just always the bad guys. Body snatchers. Like, there's always a foreign force that's the bad guy. That's just the main theme of things. But the way Quentin Tarantino decides to humanize the Nazis in this film is one of those things that kind of put me aback a bit, like... I didn't really know how to interpret it my first viewing. It was one of those things where it's like, yes, there are people too, and not all of them were evil. I mean, we can look at the German soldier who literally killed all these Americans, people. yeah. He, he defended the tower to defend basically himself. And he in the movie, you can see it on his face that he really didn't like killing people. And that he really didn't want to be there, but he gained all this fame by doing that. Not to say that he's a good person otherwise. Honestly, yeah. as a womanizer, not okay. And but... <laughs> very, very, very pushy. Oh, Clearly yes. wants a girl who doesn't want him and would pretty much do anything. And one of the scenes that he gets her in the projector room, she's like, we don't have much time, let's do this. And he's and like, he automatically oh. assumes, he's like, oh, oh, hey. Okay. He's like, finally. People are people, and not to say that all people are going to be inherently good, but having this kind of humanizing nature, you see them as more than just a uniform for like a brief second, and then immediately remember that, no, 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 they were on a side that was unapologetically murdering Jews and anyone in their way, anyone like, so they were going after Jews, the gays, they pretty much just labeled them on their, in the concentration camps, you had a different patch for what you were being represented for. And this kind of monstrosity is why we just say Nazis, evil. And it's true, Nazis are evil. Like, there's no disputing that they're that. But giving this, like, slight human nature to them kind of makes you think a little bit about maybe they didn't want to be here, but they're still doing this. It's the same as the Vietnam War, right? It's the same as our soldiers that came home who didn't want to do this. And that's not to say that every, this applies to everyone, because obviously it absolutely did not. Mm -hmm. But it gives such an interesting contrast to the different ways of how we can view this, Mm -hmm. as well as kind of reminding us and taking us out of it for a second of like the actual history that happened here, while still remembering the history that happened here. 
it's so controversial. We don't want to give any type of interpretation to any sight of goodness in these people, but of course, not one size fits all. But these characters who are so charismatic, we give them human qualities. What is the name of him? The Jew Hunter? What did he do? His whole job was basically to, under Hitler, try to find all these different families that had escaped or tried to seek asylum elsewhere so that they can be massacred, basically, was his job. And, you know, that's the moment in the beginning that Tarantino specifically wants us to remember this history and remember what actually happened before he completely reverses the roles. Again, controversial because it's empowering, but at the same time, it kind of takes us aback and be like, whoa, wait a second. Why are they committing these monstrous atrocities that were, you know, historically committed against them? But again, it's also very empowering. And I mean, I feel like you can also almost say the same about Django. Mm -hmm. Django has its own set of uh, rules, as you would say. It's an empowerment to black slaves. It is also one of those things where it's a revenge story. And it, in a way, is also a love story, which it, it's weird to like think about those three things kind of meshed together. Actually, when you look at like soap operas and all these other things that Tell we have- novellas, it's all the same. Yeah, it's just his level of violence. It exceeds, it, it, it blows the top off basically. Yeah, and that's the one thing that always gets him in trouble. There's the whole thing about Django being the revenge story. This notion that you start off with seeing him on a chain gang, just walking across barefoot with a bunch of other slaves. And then the next thing you know is He's freed, not like freed, freed, like off the bat, but they, he's purchased and then basically... God, talking about purchasing humans. Wow. It's, I mean, it's not a, it's not a soft subject. It's not a soft subject. That's the thing. And that's why I think that this film, it does hold a lot of controversy because a lot of people get really scared thinking about what actually happened and the violence obviously is so, it's so brutal. And again, it's really traumatizing. Tarantino takes it, he takes it for what it is and he puts it in front of you and says, Look at it. You need to look at this. The two biggest scenes for me would be the that first scene where we're introduced to Candy. Watching the dingo fighting was a really powerful scene. And then I would say the next big powerful scene would be the dogs tearing apart the slave because Mr. Candy has got no more use for him and he can do what he wants with his, in quotes, property. I feel like when it comes to movies about slavery, when it comes to movies about other things, we kind of tiptoe around the actual things. We love to highlight heroes. We love to kind of highlight evil people, but in a certain way. But I mean, if we <laughs> want to talk about other portrayals of black narratives and black stories, I mean, we can talk about Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. I, mean, I feel like that definitely takes such an interesting take because it's satirical, but it also highlights racism it highlights a lot of very interesting different aspects but the one thing that it doesn't really highlight is of course slavery and actual atrocities there is really inherently violent language thrown at the black sheriff but there isn't really there's no depictions of whipping there's no depictions of putting people in hot boxes there's no depictions of people being brutally murdered there's, there's yeah. no depiction of that. There's no depictions of castration even, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. we do see in Django. Like, Django is inherently yes. a very, yes. very violent film. It really is. It's just the way that he presents it in a way that it's like, this is historical, and I want you guys to look at the facts and understand why even the protagonist is on this revenge story, like, why he's doing this, why he's trying to get his love, why he's trying to run away, be free, everything. You need to understand context. It's all mm -hmm. about context. Because why shy away from something in that time period? It is almost like, hey, 
I want you to make sure you're paying attention to this because if you ignore it, you're basically saying slavery didn't happen. You, Absolutely. It's one of those things where, yes, you mentioned the hot box. You mentioned the whipping. You mentioned, we, we mentioned the dingo fighting. We mentioned them being treated so poorly. There are so many scenes that are saying, like, this is the reality of what people had to go through. Why are we going to discredit that? Why should we shy away from it? It's not here to make you feel good. It's meant to make the whole revenge story even more powerful because it goes on to basically say, like, you you can't escape this. We have to learn from it. It puts it on a spectacle. And also, I feel like another really interesting dynamic to even talk about is, of course, Sam Jackson's character, the butler. And of course, we can even mm. talk about Django in this respect, too, because I will not say a direct quote because, obviously... There was a lot of really racist language in this film, which was also very controversial. But again, mm -hmm. in context of the time period, is important to not shy away from. Basically, people saying, what is that? Doing on a horse? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to go there. But that's, that's basically what was said. Even Sam Jackson said it. And there was this whole idea that while Django was a free man, Mr. Candy kind of treated him as, in quotes, white but still as inferior. Yeah. But in, even Sam Jackson was like, wait, we're going to let this N-word be in our house and treated, like, better than me? Wait a second. He's like, no, 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 I've been working here for so long. And he's like, it's, it's, it's such a weird dynamic because what did they say? What's lower than the low is a uh, black man treating other... Black men. Or women. As inferior. Yeah, and it's like that... No, that's it's just not going to be allowed. And that's why his role when Django is pretending to be above everyone, he has to keep selling it. And you can tell he doesn't want to, but in order to keep up the facade of what they're doing, he is constantly saying, I'm superior to you. Keep yourself in line. Yeah, like, don't look at me. But it goes to the point where it's like, there's nothing lower than a low than someone treating slaves like... It, it, They're white, equal. Yeah, it, but it, like no matter if you're white or black, that treatment of slaves... like Was supposed to be across the line, yes, essentially, yes. Because it's it just shows that while Django was fronting this, he was doing a facade for the whole thing, the why they're getting there, Samuel Jackson's character is actually believing it. He believes he, he's better than the average field worker or the average other person. Absolutely. He's definitely bought into that idea. But, you know, something else I would also really love to point out is, and something I feel like we don't talk a lot in history, but I did talk about once in my American Lit class because mm -hmm. this is a really interesting dynamic that took place back in those days. And I can even argue a little bit today is how black men specifically were having to kind of adapt and assimilate into, in quotes, white culture to be accepted. And what does Django have to do to get in line to go to Monsoor Candy's place to get his woman? He has to dress better. He has to sound, in quotes, educated. He has to do all these certain things, which is what was associated to white people at that time, whether or not they lived up to that or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is obviously shown that they do not live up to it in the also very iconic scene of the KKK being absolute idiots and not understanding how to cut holes in a bag serves them right. It's a really interesting dynamic because Tarantino definitely puts a spotlight on this whole idea of whiteness and this whole idea of blackness as well, mm -hmm. especially in that time period. Because again, this was a really interesting concept where you had to assimilate and portray yourself to be white 
to be accepted by the white society. And, and that's why Monster that. Candy likes him. And even at that, you weren't really truly accepted. No, absolutely not. And why? Just because of the color of your skin, not because you're any different. Yeah, you could be completely intellectually superior. And As Django is. But just because of the color of your skin, you're already deemed less. Exactly, which is obviously something that plays out throughout history and is still playing out today, which is another important thing to talk about. The way that Tarantino puts this spectacle on it, it really forces us to look at how society worked and how society still works today in race relations and really puts a spectacle and a really big spotlight on how the actual treatment of slaves went down. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't make it pretty. He wants you to look at the atrocities and be like, holy shit, I cannot believe that this was okay. Because it's not, and it never will be. Why people want to shy away from history? Because it was brutal. Well, people want to just ignore it today and erase it, which is another really interesting topic. So, I mean, we can also argue in terms of not shying away from history. Quentin Tarantino kind of creates this, like, alternate history, if you will, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he kind of does this by creating a stuntman and an actor who is realizing that his time is pretty much up. And I've seen a lot of different takes on this film, actually, that I think are quite interesting. Someone kind of put it as make Hollywood great again. In other words, make Hollywood white again. I feel like a lot of people were also really upset about this movie because of Sharon Tate's depiction mm -hmm. and also because of Bruce Lee. Yeah, that one was the more controversial one. For I think that's the most controversial. I mean, Sharon Tate definitely got a lot of spotlight where they're like, what the heck is this? Why are you doing this to her image? But when it came to Bruce Lee's, they only put him in for one scene and they kind of made him to seem really arrogant. And while I saw no problem in it because it was like, maybe he did think, oh, what is this guy going to do to me? Whatever. Like in the well, moment, he... it's like, I'm actually trained to have registered fists. For story development. Yes. But then when you look back and say, well, Bruce Lee was never really that arrogant, then, okay, his depiction of him has been very muddied in that way. So it's really interesting to hear Quentin Tarantino's response to this because his response was basically, every time I talked to Bruce Lee or have met him over the years, he seemed really arrogant to me. Except his family is like, this is so wrong. You cannot depict him as this because this is not how he was. And he was really kind. But it, it is a little controversial because to completely take an actual real-life figure and then completely change his identity and his whole persona is a little not okay. <laughs> and to the point I was going to make is, yeah, that's right. But the whole thing is this people are like, well, he took Bruce Lee and basically made him seem like he's, well, no, he's like an asshole. And it's funny to think about it because a fictional character, which was Brad Pitt's stuntman and Bruce Lee's character, they duke it out. And you would say uh, the white man won because he threw him into a car. But if you look at just the actual score, it was one to one out of a two or three. And it was stopped before there could actually be a resolution, which still says that Bruce Lee is a badass. And it also gives the stuntman character the same level. So it's saying like he can hang with Bruce Lee, which then goes down later on kind of justification why he beats those three Masonites. <laughs> the three followers of Charles Manson who came to the house to kill them, essentially. Mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, in terms of story development, it kind of does make sense. Because how else would he have been able to, on acid, defeat three people? One with a gun, one with a knife, right? And then another literally just threw a can of dog food at her, I had mean, the dog sicked on her, and then she got 
He, Lit on fire, for I lack mean, of better words. But that's the thing, is the only reason why I saw that scene existing to me was to justify how well he was going to be able to fight later. I, I see what you mean. I do but see what you mean. I understand that this whole depiction of Bruce Lee was ultimately a little inaccurate, for sure. Diluted. And definitely did not pick put him in the best of light, which is why I think so many people have a problem with that, because, of course, he's, like, the only Asian um, depiction in that movie that I can remember. Of course, he's looking arrogant he's looking like he's the best he's he's like talking shit like i i have registered weapons as hands and then of he course he like, does but that's the point is like he's talking about it in this way that he's superior to all these other people and then of course he gets his like ass he, kicked yeah he gets his ass handed to him one-on-one first off he wins the first round then of course he does the same move again and then loses, loses and gets yeah and so then it's one-to-one and the whole point being they're equal and I mean, I don't yeah. really consider being thrown into a car equal. But I'm talking about score. I know what you mean. But I want to further this point even more because, of course, there's also other controversies surrounding the film. I mean, there's so many controversies surrounding the Which film. Which one do you want to pick? Quentin Tarantino has brought multiple voices into his films mm-hmm. before. Woman, black. There has, like, no Latinx voices, really. I will say that. And hatefully, there is a Mexican character off the top of my head. Okay. Well, I mean, like, you but know. But that's different. In terms of depiction, like, he, he yeah, does he... do a pretty all right job. You want to talk about this fervor in Once All Time in Hollywood, there's only white characters. Mm. The way that I perceive it is, like, specifically, in this time period in Hollywood, I mean, we have to, again, look at context. What was the time period? What was happening? This was on the edge of of civil rights. Mm -hmm. This was right before the 70s. Back before this, there was really not much black representation in films otherwise. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can look at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Other than that, there's not much representation throughout films. And I feel like what he was trying to do was also, in maybe a way that wasn't so clear, was try to depict the fact that that was not a thing. Bruce Lee was obviously a big character during that time. So, of course, he is included. We can look at that as well. I mean, Sharon Tate, yeah, she gets a little bit of screen time, but she's not the main story. Because, yeah, there's not a lot of women's voices in this film. There's not a lot... There's no black voices in this film. I mean, if you want to talk about the one small depiction of Latinx people that they have in this film, it's literally the valets. Yeah. And there was Mm -hmm. a really demeaning comment that I will not say. Not that it's not bad, but I won't say it. So I feel like it was kind of, in a way, to be purposeful to display the racism that exists in Hollywood. Because, I mean, come on. We can all not deny that there is a clear racist line in film. That there is a clear space where representation is not being given. Where there are awards that are not being rightfully given. There are different like levels to this, and there's a lot of different dynamics. So if you look at the 1960s in particular... Black people in films were not really prevalent. Mexican people in films were not prevalent. Other Latinx voices in films were not prevalent. Mm -hmm. It was not really a thing. So not necessarily in a way where it's make Hollywood white again, but it's in a way where it's like, literally, let's look at this actor while he is honestly absolutely pathetic. Yeah, he is falling apart. Leonardo DiCaprio's character is absolutely pathetic in the most hilarious way, but he's pathetic. He's like trying to cling on to the past, and he can't, so he's like... He's just taking what he can get, and eventually he he gives in to what he thinks is a failure, which would be those Italian westerns. But it's not really in any other way than the fact that he's like, I'm being too old for this westerns to get played out, because yeah, the western genre kind of came to a halt for a really long period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, now of course today we have revivals of it, but the western 
genre was really, really big in the beginning of film. Because it was, you know, there was so much landscape, there was so much room to do all these things, and you can do so much with it. But today, it's, it's played out. It really is. Yeah. And even in the 60s, it was starting to get played out. I don't really know necessarily how I really feel about the whole claim to it being a make Hollywood white again or make Hollywood great again kind of film. Mm -hmm. But it is definitely an interesting play into the dynamics of what being an actor is and what being an actor during that time was when celebrities were starting to become more of a thing, when -hmm. people were starting to pay more attention, and when names were starting to get more recognizable. I mean, we can even look at Sharon Tate. She was not recognizable when she first went to the movie box to go see her own film. Yeah, she's like, that, that's, that's me. That's me. Celebrity culture hasn't always existed. Mm-hmm. Honestly, today more than ever, because of media, it's existed the most. Yeah. We can look at it kind of in that way, and we can also even further look at Sharon Tate's whole development kind of in that way, too, in the storyline. It is very important to understand that, yes, Sharon Tate was brutally murdered in real life. But in this pseudo depiction of history, we see a little different side of her. We get to like understand. We get to see her happiness. Yeah, and it, it's it's one of those things where when it starts getting towards the end, they play the Rolling Stones "Out of Time" song, and the song has two levels to it that I think became immediate to me. Is the first part being okay? We're, we're nearing the end of the movie. We're, yeah, we're to the literal sense. We're getting near the end of the movie. But when it's playing over the Sharon Tate stuff, it's almost like as a real person, she's like out in, of time. She's out of time, and she's it's it's like uh, as it gets closer to that part of the film on your first viewing, you're really getting. I'm getting goosebumps talking about <laughs> it, thinking about like, are we actually going to see this go down? Like, is this where the direction's going to go? Absolutely, because we didn't know where it was going to go in the very beginning. We weren't even sure. Like, you know, Sharon Tate was obviously included, but it was like, where where's her story going? For someone who actually knows history and who lived through it, you know, I can even argue my mother because my mother, when she was watching this film with me for the first time, she was like, oh my God, I'm freaking out because I know exactly what's about to happen. And of course it doesn't happen, but she knew the history and she knew like, oh my God, this was the night that Sharon Tate actually died. And it's pretty horrifying to start thinking like, this is what we're going to about to watch. And of course, Quentin Tarantino does a Uno reverse card and says... No, no, no. Just kidding. Like, she's going to be fine in this version of history. She's the reason why they were kind of going up there, but... First of all, Charles Manson is a complete <laughs> sicko. It's not his story. Honestly, it was really interesting because when he first appears on scene, I don't... Fe- I, I think maybe once they said Charlie, but you don't really, like... They don't ever unless say Unless you name. know who Charles Manson is. If you're just watching your this film and you have no idea, you're kind of like, who the hell is this guy? You see this film, you know who Charles Manson is. You're like oh my god, that Charles Manson, he just showed up at Sharon Tate's house. And the whole reason why he wants to go, or gets his goons basically to go kill her, is because someone else lived in the house, and now she lives in the house. And he's like, you know what, let's just make this part of my vendetta. Go, go get her, basically. Mm. It's it's absolutely disgusting. And of course, he and the three younger people are kind of sitting in the car. Well, it was, it was four. four. It was four. But one of them backs out. Because and... this is wrong. But they're kind of mm-hmm. sitting there like, you know what, 
let's kill the people who taught us how to kill, which is also honestly just another, such a that's really, a deep layer. that's a deep layer. And that's the whole other thing where it kind of takes you out of it, where it's like, oh my God, is he commenting on violence in films when this is literally his entire thing? And yeah, Quentin Tarantino it's, is commenting on violence in films. It's his own dig at himself. In and way. the start of violence in films, because, you know, the whole reason why violence in the way and manner it exists in film was, you know, I can argue production codes because the whole production codes, if you guys don't know, was this whole set of rules where basically you are not allowed to do or say certain things in films or on television. Mm -hmm. And this included sex. This included anything that alluded to not marital sex. This included pretty much everything, right? How do people supplement not having sex in films? Because as we know today, sex is also very prevalent in films, not necessarily Tarantino films, but in films. Mm -hmm. They supplemented it with violence. Look at Scarface. Look at other films of this nature in these time periods. Sex has always been supplemented by violence, and when they go together, it's also never really interesting dynamic. Tarantino comments on this in this film because, again, production codes and the way that violence has influenced media forever. I mean, violence is such a huge part in media, whether it actually be the news in real life or it be movies, films, television, crime shows. Mm -hmm. So it's just the way that he kind of comments on that and it's kind of changing nature in American society at that time. The end of the civil rights movement and honestly all of counterculture to the counter counterculture and how conservatism kind of took back its place. And then of course, you know, bringing in Sharon Tate not dying. I feel like that is honestly, we all wish history could be that way. Yeah, it was kind of like a gift to us. It to was say, a gift to us. Look, I'm gonna about to show you something very violent, but I'm gonna give you a little piece of happiness because for people who actually lived through that, this was about to be a horrendous movie for them. They're not ready to relive that. It was traumatic. That was honestly probably one of the worst crimes, especially to a celebrity that happened in that time in period. that time period. She was gaining major popularity, obviously. She was a fantastic movie star. She was so beautiful. She was so happy. She was married to Roman Polinsky, asshole, but she was married to Roman Polinsky. Like, you know, she's awesome. She was an awesome woman. She was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who lived during this time, of course, like Charles Manson in the whole thing that happened there, that is just also a completely traumatic time. This is mm -hmm. when people started locking their doors. Yeah. People who had never locked their doors People before. People who never locked their doors before. And I mean, we can even argue further that during this time, the 60s entering the 70s and the 80s, was a big time where serial killers were prevalent. I mean, like, not to say that they aren't today. But you want to talk about the most infamous serial killers of all time. When did they exist? The 1970s. Ted Bundy. Gacy. Uh, Dahmer. It, just to name a few. Just to name a few. I mean, there's so many more. But, you know, there's this whole really interesting dynamic there because, yeah, it, it does comment on all these things that were happening in American society at that time. And most importantly, the whole aspect of white culture in Hollywood to begin with, mm -hmm. because if you want to talk honestly, Hollywood is white in its roots. It has always been white. Yeah. And it's changing a little bit more today, thank God, but it still has so much more room to grow. And I feel like that was another comment in yeah. like aspect of that film was talking about the way that Hollywood needed to grow and change. It's really interesting to hear criticism on these films, honestly, because we all have different opinions on it. We all mm -hmm. have different perspectives. So I feel like it's really important to talk about and kind of talk about the socio-political conversations that Tarantino specifically brings to the light because yeah. he is a controversial figure. Especially for how he comes about with his violence, his storytelling, and everything that comes with that. So while we could continue talking about this, I think 
This concludes our episode on Quentin Tarantino. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, we hope that we brought up enough for you to think about, keep a conversation going, and also having an open mind. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Project Kaleidoscope.